0: Welcome to the Life Support Podcast, where we share stories about being a doctor to build community and to heal each other, even when what ails us is incurable. My name is Paul Kim, and I just finished my first year of medical school. Already I have witnessed how medical school and medical practice have just as much potential to drain our spirits as to offer fulfillment and meaning. I hope my conversation with Dr. Horowitz today will help support you in living well your current phase of becoming a physician. Thank you, Dr. Horowitz for taking the time to speak with me today. So to get started, could you tell me about how you got to medicine?
1: I'd long had a sense, uh, and I was actually trying to think back when I first thought about doctoring and I remember I had a friend, Stephen, down the street who had a book about surgery. We must've been in third grade. Fourth grade, you know, something intriguing about that to me. And also, I remember feeling intimidated by the notion of going inside people's bodies to fix what was wrong uh, and fascinated. That's the first time I remember thinking about doctoring, as well as when I was a kid, I remember being tended to by the physician. And I specifically remember his cold hands and cold stethoscope on my back, but also feeling soothed by the doctor who I came to meet many years later in my medical school training. Now, an older man, I remember him when he was young, he was new as a pediatrician when I was seven or eight, and I knew he was new. He was learning with me. I know he had said something about that, and he was really kind, and I got to know him later until he retired when he actually worked for me a little bit in doing some teaching uh, remarkable human being so I saw him through the course of his career and I remember thinking this, this it looks like nice thing to be able to offer people because I remember he set me at ease whatever was troubling me when I was a little kid with a cough or some kind of illness I don't know what it might have been I uh, didn't have any physicians in the family at least not close I had an uncle who was a an OB My, I, I barely knew when I was a kid So I I always had the sense that doctoring was in my future for reasons that aren't clear. Some of that's growing up as a comfortably middle-class Jewish suburban kid, where that was the trajectory that a lot of my cohort sort of understood. I don't remember it being talked about when I was a child, though, in my house. So it was there. It was in the backdrop. I did well in school. I enjoyed learning. I um, anticipated when I went to college, I would go pre-med because this was my destiny. And there came a point when it just didn't feel sincere. It just didn't feel authentic. And I questioned whether that was going to be the right fit for no particular reason, other than I hadn't done much questioning at that point. My rebellion, to the extent I had one, came I think at the very end of high school, in the beginning of college, when I decided to get off of the road that had been set out, it felt like without my paving it long, long ago. So after two years of college, I I took some time. I stopped. I dropped out is the language you use. And we're trying to, I don't know, dignify that or make it sound subversive in some way, but I dropped out of college and I started living and uh, seeing what it was like to provide service. I, I, I suppose I traveled around a bit. I hitchhiked around the United States with long hair. That was my sort of entry into the rebellion. And, and then I I settled down back in town in an apartment with a friend and wanted to work in serving people. And I chose work that was available to a, somebody without a degree in service, which is human services, working with kids with emotional disturbance and working with people of all ages with challenges with substances, uh, alcohol and drug addiction, and and found this work deeply satisfying. I did that for a number of years and felt an opportunity to be of value to people who were struggling, who were suffering, who were being marginalized by their oftentimes mental, emotional, spiritual challenges, their behavioral differences, often socioeconomically driven, you know, clearly and found it a pleasure, a joy. Even I started, I think, using the word a calling to serve in some way. I wasn't quite sure how to do it. I struggled around a lot of possibilities. Was I was like going to be a teacher, a therapist. Didn't quite know. I did some vocational testing and was e- expecting I'd rank very high for a physician, just because that's a scene now was the time. But I got my highest scores for being a funeral director and a chaplain and didn't quite know what that meant. I will tell you now, as a palliative care physician and leader, I really get what that meant. Something in that testing was picking up my pleasure, my drive, my curiosity about being with people who suffering, exploring some of the deeper spiritual issues, accompanying people as they're confronting their mortality. It makes sense now. At the time, I didn't quite get it, but confrontation with mortality came shortly after that when a childhood friend of mine died. I was 28, and uh, that shook me up. This was a friend I, I loved dearly when we were very young, and her death by a car accident rattled my cage and, and said something to me about time being evanescent, that sitting on the fence was satisfying, but also painful. The pickets are sharp and it was time to get off the fence. And all this coming together, I thought going to medical school would be a way of extending the work I'm doing with a lot of options ahead of me. And I did that wholeheartedly. I went to medical school at 29 here in my hometown and I'm grateful to have done so.
0: Could you tell me some more about those working years after those first two years of college? What were you actually doing and what seemed so satisfying to you in that work? I did a number of things during
1: the years. I worked in a machine shop and I drove a school bus and I did a lot of different things, which I actually always pleasure in working. I grew up in a household with a father who was an engineer and a systems engineer who valued people, who worked hard, whatever was their craft, whatever was their drive. Without judgment, I, I think ours was a pretty open and inclusive household that valued commitment to doing good work whatever that was. That was encouraging to me. I I didn't feel sort of this classist sense in my house. Whatever work I did, if I brought my heart to it it would would be okay. I found my heart was most satisfied, though, working with people who were having a tough time in their lives. That first human services job I had one summer worked in a day camp for kids with emotional challenges. The term back then was emotionally disturbed. And good heavens, who's not? Most of these kids grew up in households filled with challenges and privations and conflicts, economically wanting, largely kids of color, largely one-parent households supervised by mom. That work being with kids who who grew up in a way I hadn't was eye-opening for me. And and being so different in so many ways, I I felt many times that this didn't make sense for me to be a a giver, a supporter, a healer in that setting because I was so different. And yet, uh, along the way, I knew I wasn't so different in some ways. And I Found the same thing at the residential facility I worked at for kids of all ages now with similar emotional challenges, some of them with psychiatric diagnoses that ranged from depression, anxiety to schizophrenia. And to be able to spend time with a child who, in many cases, had never known embrace or love or feeling valued, how powerful was my? Simply sitting with, talking to, looking in the eyes of and being affectionate and grateful for this human being and sensitive to their difficulty. You know, the days were spent, this was a residential setting. Seems to me like, gosh, I don't know, 20 kids maybe in these big residential buildings, walking them through their day from wake up time, um, breakfast. Getting out to the school on the grounds, enjoying some time in the gym or outdoors, and maybe going on a field trip to a movie or a concert, just spending time, never presuming that I was really family, but sometimes feeling like family. And in some ways, they're a most important family, sending them off sometimes on the weekend to the lucky ones who had parents who could take them home, sometimes then receiving them back on Sundays from uh, a, a lovely or very painful return to a home that was hard. What was satisfying about that to me? I I don't know. I think some reckoning that we were so different and so the same, that my being sincerely present, that in fact, just the value of presence, of sincere presence, had meaning. That while I was not choosing this work to be receiving affection and gratitude from the kids, I received that that they were most appreciative, couldn't help sometimes, but show their thanks for a, at that point, gosh, young 20s man, tending to them respectfully. And that was really telling. I remember talking with a colleague at one point saying, you know, who am I to be doing this work? And I remember them saying to me, "Who, who you are as a human being, who knows loss, not their loss, but you know loss, and you know grief, and you know privation, and you know judgment. And so you can bring into this relationship all of that knowing, not their knowing, but yours. And you can be in their presence and be a value for simply being an authentic human being. That has always stuck with me. I should reach out to her. I, I still remember her name. Thank her for that bit of advice that carries me through now.
0: And I know you stated uh, some of the things that were different between you and the children that you worked with in terms of you know, coming from a different class background, different family background. But could you elaborate a bit on what were some of the similarities that you found? I guess going back to this last
1: reflection I'm sharing with you, my colleague who'd been doing this work for a bit longer, who was in a supervisory position, Kathy, I remember her first name. That conversation that in some sense we're, I don't know if this was her language then, but it's my language now that we're all one in some way that wherever we come from we share some very basic truths we are born into this world in a body that that is borrowed. We'll be in that. It will grow with us and it will end, this body. This life will come to a close. So we're all born into this world mortal. Whatever our belief about what comes after this body dies, we will all experience joys and sorrows and different ratios, different reasons. But we can't in this human embodiment live a life without grief, without pain, without loss. That is the experience of being alive in a body. In a life. And I don't think I was using this kind of language then, but that was the heart of what I was coming to reckon with that in community with another, in communing with another human being who shares this reality of transience, of mortality, of vulnerability, of being a flawed, perfectly imperfect human being, we share a lot in common, wherever we're coming from. And and our differences are sometimes stark, and they can be for sure exploited. And the power differential is a powerful one that can distance us. We can close some of the distance, not ignore the differences. That's not the intent here but reckon with what we do share and in some way simply in presence with another naming this or not and that depends on the sophistication and depth of the relationship or uh, the interest of the the parties involved know that we have much in common you know moving that if if I may even into the realm of doctoring this is just what's so alive to me in, in the work so I can say this looking back now with clarity the notion of doctor patient or clinician client or whatever that dynamic of the healer and the one who's hurting the patient. The the word patient derives from, I think, ultimately Latin, but for one who suffers, you know, if a patient is one who suffers, that's all of us. In the medical realm, most people aren't wanting to be patients. Some people are for complicated reasons, but most of us don't seek to be suffering. Most of our patients come to that not by will or preference. It's for all of us, though, at some point and sometimes at many points and sometimes chronically in our lives to be patients, to be suffering in some fashion. And I've come to see that the response to being with others or knowing that there are others who are suffering and there are many, our responses to that can be many. I know In me and most of the humans I've come to know over the years, and that's lots, there is some natural, almost inevitable, built-in evolutionary piece of us, not just confined to humans, by the way, that sees suffering, that knows it that is familiar with it that witnesses it in others and you might call that the empathy quotient I, you know I don't know the language varies, but in my understanding of this empathy, that word empathy is this isn't a linguistics discussion here I know Paul, but it's a pretty new remnant of English language only like 150 years old, but that M that's in pathos suffering it's it's in pain, it's in another's pain essentially. it's knowing that there is pain. I think it, it actually grew up in German, art literature talking about a painter who could draw the viewer of the painting into the experience of the painter the suffering of the painter me my sense of this is that when another's suffering then various modalities in my being are alerted some of that is putting myself in another's shoes you know the language is cognizing i can think about what it might be like to be that person i can also notice emotion in me that is not that person's emotion we can't presume that in science fiction we can actually see people who feel others' pain. I don't know that we really feel others' pain. I'm not sure that's true, although I think there are realms of connecting that might be more like that than we know. But I certainly know what it is that I feel what I'm imagining might be what the person hurting feels. That's this sort of emotional realm of of empathizing. So there's the cognizing, there's the feeling part of it too. And when those happen there's a reckoning that another person's hurting. It doesn't take a lot of work for some. It might take a little bit of work to see it. It might mean turning off something else that's distracting them from that. So that all humans, almost all humans, and probably other animals have that empathizing capacity. Then there's the choice question. You know, what do I do with that? And that's where the work comes, I think. You know, so this doctoring work, I think, is about moving from empathizing, from perceiving, believing, knowing another's hurting, to acting on that in some way. And that's where the word compassion comes. Come, compassion is with. It's not in, it's with the suffering of another. It's a choosing to approach, not to turn away from, not to run away from, not to avoid, not to deny. That's what I think all healing work is about, not just doctoring. Any number of careers, any number of kinds of work are around healing, around being with others who are choosing to accompany others who are suffering. I think in a way, that's what drew me to the work at the residential treatment facilities is to be with people suffering, is to turn towards, is to accompany. As a physician, that being with others who are suffering means choosing to do so. And in that accompaniment is, I think, the possibility for, this is sort of full circle for healing. If healing in that word, oh, here I go linguistics again, I apologize, but healing derives from the word for wholeness. It's helping people who are hurting feeling whole again. You know, Eric Cassell, who wrote beautifully about suffering, um, I probably won't do him justice, but said something like suffering is the experience of feeling an actual or potential threat to our intactness our wholeness. That could be confronting our mortality. It could be losing a limb. It could be fear of losing a limb. It could be having a pain in the chest that I wonder if it's a heart attack or I wonder if it's cancer. It could be losing love in life. It's loss of our integrity, loss of our wholeness. That's where the suffering is. And here now is a choosing to be with that person who's suffering and help them feel whole again, not to reattach the limb necessarily, not to deny the reality of mortality, rather to a Accompany them in the midst of that reality and be a mirror to their fullness, their goodness, and help them maybe see that wholeness can exist even when parts of us are threatened, even when we're coming to the close of our lives. That's what I think this healing work, in my case, doctoring, is about is seeing the patient for the whole being there, helping them become not just patient defined by their illness, but a whole person who has illness, who's suffering with illness, help them feel whole again. So that's the full circle for me that I felt numbers of times in my growing up. I felt in the work I was doing there in the residential setting uh, with drug addicts and alcoholics who also are feeling So unintact, so dissolved in so many ways, helping them perhaps have an opportunity to feel whole again, if nothing else, by being seen as whole by somebody else, whether they could believe that themselves or not.
0: And so you've talked about this type of healing, this making whole again. And it seems that in the context in which you've talked about that, it often seems that that healing happens through relationships. So could you tell me, shifting this to a bit more of a medical context now, just to give some background to the people listening, I know that you're the head of the palliative care department at URMC. So how do you go about trying to build a sense of relationship and community within your department?
1: You know, I have a friend here who I can't speak long about because he's had this paper he's been wanting to write about this for a long time. And so I don't wanna undermine that possibility, but I can tell you, this won't ruin it for him, that doing palliative care work. So just to define that just very briefly, the, the stuff that we palliative care experts or specialists do is the stuff you would want any healer clinician to do. And we just do a lot of it well. And what that stuff is, is helping people, in this case with serious illness, who are suffering or anticipating suffering, help them live life as well as possible, optimize their well-being, anticipate and treat the symptoms that come with illness, with progression of illness, with treatment of illness, and help assure that the treatment plan that we co-create is based upon their values in the context of what's going on, not mine, not some ideal of how it's supposed to be. So it really is, in language, it sounds so trite, but is real and is about healing. It is person-centered. It is centered on their personhood in the realm of what's going on in their life. And this involves very serious, and I hope sometimes lighthearted, and sometimes by design, very heavy-hearted discussions around what matters to them. It means talking about bad news. It means exploring hopes and fears and worries and preferences and priorities. It's about having really, really frank discussions to the extent they're open and willing to do so about what's going on, what are its implications and who are they in this context. My friend says that this work is the work of being human. This work is the work of being a leader. I, you know, as a leader of a division here in this academic medical center, in the work I do with my colleagues, I have a lot of frank discussions and I share a lot of bad news and I hope some good news. And I help direct, I hope, my colleagues at all realms of this division, from the administrators who help make the operation work, to the environmental service who helps make it shine, to the nurses who are sitting at the bedside, holding hands and delivering complicated cocktails of medication and love for the patients, the social workers, the massage therapists, the physicians, the financial people, helping us all see where we are in this shared effort to deliver the goods to our patients and families and community. And when things are going Badly in this last year of COVID magnified all the hard stuff that happens in divisions, in industry, in business, because there is business here to make this work well. We have some frank and difficult discussions about the implications of what's going on in the community, in the environment, including, you know, in COVID, uh, our risk of exposure and exposing others to contagion. Um, How do we continue to do this hands-on loving work in a setting that is terrified of being close and of touching uh, when this is all about touch? How do we find our sense of wholeness when so much of what the work we've done is now taken away from us? When we're putting masks in front of the faces that we use to communicate our our intentions, when we're putting gloves on the hands, when when we're wanting to touch and to hold the hand of someone who's... Uh, anticipating leaving this life. When we're saying no to a patient who wants a family member by the bedside as they're dying, because the risks are too great, because the institution is trying to protect others from contagion, how are we able to deliver on this work that we have done so beautifully when it means holding a phone to the ear of someone who's dying so the daughter can say, I love you and goodbye. That has only magnified what is inherently challenging in in community, which is you're asking about community building and feeling a valued member of the community when hierarchy is such an integral and ugly part of business and medical practice. These are incredibly complicated dimensions that leave good human beings who are In themselves all of equal value, but are regarded by the system sometimes differentially in terms of their importance or value. Uh, How to help all see and know and be seen and known and valued by one another. It's not an easy task. How do I do it? I don't know that I do. Uh, I I tell you humbly, I struggle around this. And I think any of us who take seriously our leadership role in divisions or departments or institutions, large or small, struggles with how to reconcile the sometimes competing demands of the work to provide the best care possible to our patients and families with or without COVID making it harder to do this within a model that is a business and then in fact needs a business plan in order to survive because without funds flow, you can't do the work. How do we reconcile these two which feel attention? How do we do this when I know as a medical student and as a resident and as a practicing clinician now for years, I feel the tension between the push to be productive, medicine as a business, when that's in tension with providing loving healing care as a calling. Those two can feel like they are Absolutely in conflict with one another. And often they are. And one demands a compromise of the other, almost inevitably. How do we find a balance between these competing drives that is fair and appropriate? That doesn't reduce this work to simply a business of producing more RVUs, relative value units, to drive up the income, to be a competitive practice. The question I think you were asking about building community in this work as a leader, I wish to, I want to, I aspire to ensuring that everyone who works in this space and with whom we interact outside of my division, I'm not one who believes in tribalism in this way. We really are in this together if we're going to be doing this well. We do share far more in common than we have as differences. This isn't about I hope, competition between divisions. I want to have a a climate of authenticity. That's the language of sort of making the space psychologically safe for all to be who we are. That doesn't mean we share with everybody everything that's going on in our lives, but it does mean we can be who we truly are, filled with joy or sorrow or both much of the time when we're at work, while we're doing the work, without having to hide, without having to put on a happy face, without having to
0: keep it just positive. I think that was a very helpful exploration of the kind of general theme, especially with you bringing to light something that I imagine a lot of physicians feel of this. There's the business side where because, you know, without that, you can't do the work if you just don't have the money to you know, keep the lights on. And also of saying, but we came here to do a certain healing work. And it can feel very frustrating when that healing work is thwarted by something else that is also necessary. And so I think actually at the end, you were getting very close to what I was gonna ask next, which is what are some of the structures or policies or things that you do to try and create, as you say, that space for authenticity? I can say
1: what I do and say what I wish
0: I do. What I
1: do is probably not enough, but make opportunities for the community to be with one another in various settings This might look like a a weekly interdisciplinary meeting where we have a unit, a 12-bed unit here in the hospital for patients with serious illness, many of whom will die on that unit, some of whom will we will be able to craft a treatment plan that will allow them to return home or elsewhere, sometimes for a long while, sometimes for a short while. While as they're dying. Our interdisciplinary team includes many people with different and some overlapping roles who take care of patients and families. So our weekly meeting, and we have several different kinds of daily meetings, is built to bring us all together in support of the patient and family and one another to share our perspectives, all of which matter in providing best care. And often the structure makes it appear that some perspectives matter Decidedly more than others, and often in a way that is unbalanced and proportionately wrong-headed, I guess I would say. And by that I'm talking about. So me. So I'm a physician, and uh, when I round on my folks on the unit. I may go in for three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes. I may go back and have another conversation with patient and family about what's going on. What does it mean? I may explore deeper questions about in someone who, for example, is on our unit because they have severe cancer-associated pain and shortness of breath as they're approaching end of life, choosing between more medication that will likely ease the severity of those symptoms at the same time as it clouds their thinking, someone who prizes thinking and clarity, how to help them find an acceptable balance, how to help the family who are watching their father or son or partner dying, leaving this life, how to help them be as okay as they possibly can be and present as they wish to be as they're watching their... Their loved one struggling for breath, maybe wanting to ease that at the same time as they want to look in each other's eyes some more and remember again. So I may have, and I'm speaking in strong language about really important stuff that I may do in my five or 10 or 15 minutes. And then, wow. Then there's the nurse who's in there eight to 12 hours of the day. Now she or he may have two, three, four other patients. so not in there continuously, but last time they may well spend three, four hours with this very same patient and family. They may well be in there when the patient and family are revealing truths, deeper truths that, well, they thought the doctor, they thought that Horowitz guy, You know, he's a nice guy, but with you, with you, my friend, the the nurse, I can really tell the truth. I can really open up. They may have access to uh, what really matters in a way I might not in my, what might feel like drive-by. Or the patient care tech who's in that room, who has the task, the beautiful and painful and frustrating task of getting in there to help them stay clean and intact and whole and sparkly when they've lost control of urine or stool. Give them a bath to help them feel clean and and okay again and touchable again. Another place that can be so vulnerable and the exquisite work a patient care tech can do in helping someone who feels so sometimes dirty and untouchable to feel less dirty, maybe even clean, maybe even pretty or handsome or desirable in some way. Again, help them feel that they're in crisp sheets, not sitting in junk and mess. There too is a perspective where the truth can be revealed in a way that that I, as the doc, who came in briefly in the morning and will come back later for a, a discussion, may not have access to. So, so all these different dynamics. And yet, if you look at the hierarchy and if you look at our website, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say we have pictures of our patient care techs and our, and our nurses and our doctors and our environmental service folks. And yet I was looking at it yesterday and, and thinking, oh God, you know, but there, of course, there, the doctors are on top and there are the nurse practitioners and there. You know, how hierarchy plays out graphically in that way. So, you know, how do I mix that up? We are different in our roles. I'm rewarded differently. I have titles after my name that can satisfy an ego that's hungry for titles, I suppose, however the rest of the world sees it. So it's all this complicated stuff that in that interdisciplinary team meeting, it's largely physicians, nurse practitioners who do exquisite work. They really run the show in our unit. There may be a nurse there. There's almost never a patient care tech. They're too busy taking care of patients to take an hour out. There aren't that many of them. We'll have a social worker. So are we really representing team in terms of our value to the patient? No, not in that meeting. I think we're getting getting some important work done in terms of crafting a plan for them, but I'm not sure we're always doing that. Ideally, we have a daily, what we call huddle, to bring the whole team together in there. The nurses may have a drawn voice to talk from their perspective about what's going on in the room. That's valuable. It's a place where I hope as we learn to do this better. And this is a relatively new thing for us in other units that we're really prizing and valuing that the nurses are feeling seen and heard and valued that their opinion matters in an enormous way in terms of providing the best care to the patient at the bedside. Those are a couple settings in the clinical realm that matter. We also have a few gatherings or round tables, we call them, or meetings where people from across the clinical realm or other realms sit together and talk about what's going on. Some more openly than others, where we can have—I would hope—an open, honest forum where we share our pleasures and frustrations, our hopes. We really hear one another. That doesn't always satisfy. I hear after meetings like that often enough. Well, you know, you know, you're—you you can listen. You know, when I can, I should say I, I can listen. Sometimes I'm distracted and not a very good listener. Um, when I'm attentive and listening well, um, the listening alone, I think, is a value. It's not enough. And many people are frustrated by having a place where they can be heard, but it doesn't feel that that hearing is going to change things in the direction they wish things were changed. So those are a few of the imperfect ways that on a regular basis, we across the NEMSBOC speaking here mostly about the clinical team, not the education or research or administrative team come together to have a, a shared sense of mission vision and to value one another
0: well, thank you that was a very wonderful look at the many different ways and the many different people that have to work together in order to do this healing work well it reminded me a lot of what you were saying reminds me of the time that i spent in the community and reminded me of yes how Grateful I felt to have people of different perspectives and different roles to come together, and how grateful I also felt as someone who, relatively speaking, did not have much power in that dynamic of also being given time to say, well, this is what I think, and this is my perspective, and have that be taken seriously. And that last thing that you mentioned about sometimes uh, in those listening spaces that the listening to what someone is struggling with can be helpful for sure and yet there so often can be a sense of well you know you're listening to me say this why isn't something happening in order to do this and I remember in my community also feeling similarly if there was something that I thought really should be different and no matter how many times I said something about it, nothing ever happened until yeah. after I left. Yeah. But So how do you, as yeah. in some ways, the person that is hold the power in this situation, yeah. how do you grapple with that? So that's a, it's a hugely important question. And I,
1: and it's a, it's a continuous struggle. I, I can tell you this last year, COVID challenged all of us in new ways. And one of my great pleasures in the distress, uh, the trauma of COVID adjustment was seeing colleagues in, in leadership down the hall and in passing down the hall to the next urgency calling to us, I'd stop and you know, we'd say, how are you? And, and the response is that usual social, oh, fine, how are you? And in and, and my thing then, and, and Paul, you see me in the hall, I might do the same thing. I'll tip my head and I'll say, okay, how are you? Are you? <laughs> and people who knew me and were willing would often then stop and say, you really want to know? And I say, I do. Um, And usually it was something about I'm heartbroken. This is incredibly hard. I feel like a failure as a leader. I can't fix what's going on. People are turning to me to make things better. And I don't know what better even looks like. And so I'm sitting with them and I'm holding for them and I'm trying to imbue them with a sense of cheer and hope. And this brings me to your question. It makes me think about palliative care, which has been a place of a lot of learning. So my work in palliative care is to be with people who have serious illness. My job is not to fix that illness. And in fact, oftentimes the folks who come to me have had incredible experts trying to fix that, treat that, cure that, and often have met with a refractory condition that can no longer be mitigated, that is now taking over, which will be the cause of dying sometime soon. And so my job is not to put on a happy face, to look for a silver lining per se. It might be about the quote unquote, the bad news of what is going on is not not fixable. Then in fact, this disease, this condition, my language last year was this COVID. I don't have the power to make it go away. We are in a setting where this is our reality now. And our challenge in a sense is how do we be in this reality? How do I help you, my patient, be in this reality, in this living body now, very much alive now, even anticipating dying, and be in this body, in this life, as well as possibly could be, even with the reckoning that it's not fixable, it's not going away, that living is going to come to a close. How do we do that? What do we have power over? This is sort of serenity prayer stuff, but you know, what do I have the power to do within the context of what's going on? And it's not eradicating it. It's not using a platitude to say it's okay. There is a silver lining. You know, can't you be positive? It's not about turning a frown upside down. It's about looking someone in the eye who is grieving the, the waning of their life, the suffering, the loss of intactness and wholeness, and help them maybe discover some more approach to feeling some more wholeness in what's going on, some less pain, some more connection. I do think the value of listening and I'm looking at you right now and you're a hell of a listener and Paul, what is that? You know, so, you know, I'm going on and I'm going on because you just keep looking at me, at least through zoom. I think, yeah, you are looking at me. I have to look at this if you're not the camera um, and I'm looking at you and you're really, you're attending to me and you're smiling. And I say something that looks like it has meaning to you and you're nodding to me and I'm, I'm feeling seen and heard. And that's, That's lovely. And I'm not providing an answer to the pain of living in a a life that's short. I'm talking truth and somehow get a sense, you know, you're, you're hearing me in a way that has some meaning. The forums I'm talking about sometimes are about being with people who are suffering. And I'm talking about my colleagues in a unit where, for example, they're saying no to family members who wish to be there with their loved ones. My nursing staff and patient care tech staff sometimes feel more like they're being police or sergeants at arms than healers, because they have to say no, because that's our mandate, because it's the right thing to do. And it hurts like hell, and they didn't sign up for this. So my obligation is to know how hard this is down to the bone and hopefully help them see in my eyes that, that I really, I see that. I know that. I'm not them. I'm not experiencing their suffering in their same way, but I see them in theirs and I value them and I love them. And that that alone has some value, even if and when I don't have the power to fix the thing that's in their way. Now I can, I can adjust some policy and some guidelines about who comes in and when and who oversees that. And we've done a lot of those things. I'm glad to say our sitting down in our gatherings has yielded a lot of very substantive changes that have made it a little less bad hasn't made it perfect by any means. It's, it's a little less bad. It's a little more congenial. There's a little bit less of a sense of being police. It's not enough. It's not back to the way it was. That I can't get us there until things change a lot. And I think some of the changes we're seeing in the realm of what COVID has done to our practice are not going to be going away. And that's another reality that my job then as a leader is to help us make sense of and accept, even if we're never really at peace with that.
0: Thank you again for such an insightful answer. I think you talking about taking the training of palliative care medicine and taking it and extending it to colleagues, in a sense, reminds me of a poem that I wrote a couple of years back about how I often find when someone else is suffering it's very easy for me to offer a palliative approach to things and I feel very comfortable in doing that. But when I'm the person suffering, palliation is the last thing that I want to hear about. I was like, no, 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 there has to be some way to fix this. There has to be some way to make this all better and it's much more difficult for me to accept that this suffering is not going to go away and that this may be the new reality I have to make decisions in. And the decisions that are offered to me or that are possible are not ones that I particularly like. (laughs) Thanks to Dr. Horowitz for sharing his story with us. Opening and closing music is composed by Amanda Chow. Dr. Eric Larson is my mentor and advisor. I was telling him about how much I love the couple in the werewolf romance novel I'm reading, and I was surprised when he gave me his thoughts on the series. Those two can feel like they are absolutely in conflict
1: with one another and often they are, and one demands a compromise of the other. Almost inevitably, how do we find a balance between these competing
0: drives that is fair and appropriate? If you have any topics you would like to hear on the podcast, please email lspodcastproject at gmail.com. That's just an L and Justin an S, no periods. Thanks for listening and helping to build this community of mutual support, trust, and care.